Good morning. I hope you have come with open hearts and are ready for God's Word to speak to you this morning. I, I hope that uh, uh, this uh, new tradition that we've started of just singing a song uh, and praying to God, uh, those words. We've come with open hearts, God, Let the ancient words, ancient words impart. Uh, it's good to be back, really, truly good to be back. I, uh, I was in the Middle East and in Europe, I think probably most of you know that, um, and, and, and just had a really good time. There were doors opened uh, during my time there in the Middle East that uh, I didn't expect to see opened, and it uh, truly looks like there's going to be a, uh, an expansion of, uh, of the reach that we have there in, in the Middle East, and uh, we're asking God for that. Uh, we'll see perhaps... In December, there'll be an event that, uh, that, makes that, that makes that real and possible. My time in Europe was very well spent. Uh, it was nice to be in a place. It's kind of funny because, you know, I go on these missions trips all the time and can rarely find anybody that wants to go with me. But now that I'm going to Europe, everybody seems to want to go. Uh, so, I, you know, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not doubting your... Yeah, I am doubting your motives. I just, I am. I, I have to be honest. It doesn't pay for me to lie at the beginning of a message. But um, we'll, uh, we'll see what God is going to do there. They, uh, they were praying. They actually texted me and said that they were praying at the very moment uh, at 6 a.m. on Wednesday when I was sitting down with the elders to talk about what we had seen. And so they're very enthusiastic and want to see God do something uh, remarkable there. And so, we'll see. We'll see what God has. This morning, we'll be continuing our studies in Paul's second letter to Timothy in a series entitled, Be Strong in Grace. This is part 49 and entitled, Be Strong in Grace. We finally arrived at the passage from which we took the title for the entire series. And we'll be unpacking 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Last week, Brian walked us through verses 15 through 18 of 2 Timothy chapter 1, and as he walked us through those, those uh, verses, he talked to us about the difference between living unashamed and living ashamed, and really what Brian taught last week tied directly to what Chad taught the week before, because God himself has placed the gospel within us, and it's up to us to live out what God has implanted in us and to work out what God has worked into us, and Chad, thank you, especially for that illustration to that reference to marriage, because there is a very real difference, and I hope that resonated with you the way it did with me. There's a real, very real difference between getting married and being married, just like there's a difference between a wedding and a marriage. When one of our friends got married years ago, when we were ministering in the Philippines, they invited us to their wedding, but since their wedding was going to be 12,000 miles away, we couldn't make the trip. We were living in the tribe at the time. So I wrote back to them that we'd not be able to attend their wedding, but we would certainly make sure to attend their marriage, and, and uh, there is a difference. And uh, as, while I was over there in the Middle East and Europe these past two weeks, I used Chad's illustration again as we talked about the message of the gospel and the fruit of the gospel and the difference between those two things. And having said that, I have to tell you, Chad, that you failed in a significant aspect of your message because you said that one of your goals was to get demoted to the preaching C team. Sorry, Bucko. I, I, I have to say that there is no C team in your future, and I can tell you I will gladly sit down 
anytime and listen to anything that you have to say. So thank you for that, Chad. But back to this illustration from the difference that comes between getting married and being married. We are confronted at one point in our lives with the message of the gospel, and at a single point in time, we believe the message of the gospel, and then we spend the rest of our lives allowing the gospel to bear fruit in our lives by means of our obedience to the Spirit of God. We spend the rest of our lives constructing our faith, and that's in keeping with what Paul said in the first chapter of Romans. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Listen to this. For in the gospel, a righteousness, the righteousness, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. We become righteous by faith, and we live by faith once we are righteous. So we become righteous in the first place by believing the message of the gospel, and then the, the gospel itself continues to impact our lives for the rest of our lives as we live out the truth of the gospel and allow the gospel to bear fruit in our lives on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. And that's going to have everything to do with how I live and, and sharing the gospel and passing that along and entrusting it to other people. But there's, there's nothing in our lives that's more foundational than the gospel because the gospel proclaims the finished work of Christ, which, by the way, is the pivot point of history, And I realize that I'm mixing my metaphors here, but everything pivots on the finished work of Christ. All of history pivots on the finished work of Christ. And that's why we say that the gospel, which proclaims the finished work of Christ, becomes the very foundation of our faith. When you mess with the gospel, you do the same damage to the church that you do to a building when you mess with the foundation. When you mess with the gospel... You do the same damage to the church that you do to a building when you mess with the foundation. I wonder if anyone here recognizes that building that's just appeared on the right-hand side over there. You know the name of that building? It's called the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Yes, and it's called that because, well, it's a tower, and uh, it's in Pisa, and it is, <laughs> well, it's leaning. I mean, that's, I think it's a very appropriate name, the Leaning Tower of Pisa. And you probably know that the, the Tower of Pisa is not leaning because of a lack of stru structural integrity in the building. In fact, it's one of the most beautiful buildings in the world. The problem with this building is all in the foundation. And as a child, I remember hearing predictions as to when the tower would fall because the angle, angle of the lean was increasing every single year. But over the years since then, there have been several massive efforts made to reverse or at least slow down the lean. And those efforts have proven successful because today the tower is still leaning, but it leans less than it used to and there is no longer any danger of it falling. But none of the engineering efforts they made were directed at changing the building. They were all directed at reinforcing and stabilizing the foundation. And it's a good thing because uh, here's three pictures of another leaning tower that was in the city of Pavia. And I say it was in the city of Pavia because the picture on the left is the picture of what the tower looked like while it was standing and leaning. And the pictures on the right are what happened because they didn't reinforce or stabilize the foundation. And by the way, when the tower fell, three people were killed 
as the rubble crushed the life out of them. And that has everything to do with us today when we, look, when we look at the potter's house. If our church fails someday, it won't be because we didn't play the right music. It won't be because we didn't have dynamic teachers, and it will not be because our building was not beautiful enough. If our church fails someday, it will be because we failed to maintain the foundation that the gospel provides, or because we allowed someone to erode, chip away at, and change the gospel until the message that we proclaim is no longer the foundation that the Word of God provides for us in the gospel. And I know that you must be tired of hearing all this talk about the gospel, but uh, remember we teach expositionally here, and this is the thing that Paul has been talking about these days. He seems obsessed with it. This, by the way, I'll remind you, is his last letter. And it seems to me that the older he gets, the more he feels the way I have begun to feel about this message of the gospel and the, and the importance of it, the foundational aspect of, of the gospel itself. And I, I hope that you're catching that and that you won't get tired of, of, of hearing this uh, because I can promise you if we don't keep the gospel intact, we will lose everything. But having said that, as Brian pointed out last week, there are some people who have become ashamed of the gospel, and it seems to me that that happens more often in our 21st century, primarily because the gospel is not a modern message. <coughs> the, uh, the gospel is old, but by saying that, that I, I don't mean that the gospel is old-fashioned, old-school, antique, or even out of date. The gospel is not an old expired carton of milk that needs to be thrown away. And it is not a fashion accessory from the 50s that needs to be freshened up with the, with the new style and colors. And this is especially important. The gospel is not something to be ashamed of. It is never something to be ashamed of. But now in the 21st century, there are those people who are ashamed of the gospel because, primarily, it's politically incorrect and it's prone to cancel culture. Now, let's face it, the gospel is 2,000 years old. And to some people, that means that the gospel is simply not woke. And so many, there are so many so-called Christians in our modern generation that would rather stay woke than preach the gospel. That's so important to them. And I, I, wanna, I want us just to think about what we just did this morning. We celebrated the Lord's death. Jesus didn't ask us to celebrate how politically correct he was. He didn't ask us to celebrate how woke he was. He asked us to celebrate his death, his burial, and his resurrection on our behalf. What it cost him to provide salvation to us free of charge. This wonderful gift that we can pass along to others. Let's face it, the gospel is 2,000 years old. And to some people that means that the gospel is simply not woke. And, and many so-called Christians would rather stay woke. But sadly, the hope of humanity doesn't lie in our staying woke. The hope of humanity lies in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. For example, there are those who think it's old-fashioned or, I don't know, off-color, and even barbaric, that's the word I've heard, to suggest that God hates sin and punishes sinful people. That's an old-fashioned idea. To them, it's much more acceptable to just talk about God's grace and mercy and love and forgiveness because, well, that's a much more appealing side of who God is. 
Now, I freely admit that God is gracious and merciful and, and loving and forgiving, and I'm thrilled beyond words when I have the opportunity to share that with people. But we should know that very early on in Genesis, God expelled Adam and Eve from the garden because they sinned, because they disobeyed, and God never again walked in the cool of the day with a human being. Not long after that, God sent the flood in Noah's day, and when he did that, he judged punished and destroyed the entire population of planet Earth except those who had believed God. Those who believed God, a total of eight people, got in the ark that God had provided for their safety and protection, their salvation from his judgment. And sometimes I talk to people who will tell me that it's too archaic, it's too old-fashioned, too cruel, in fact, to tell people that God hates sin and punishes sinful people. And when I talk to someone like that, I'll nearly always say that I think the people who died in the flood would be surprised to hear them say that, that God doesn't hate sin and he doesn't punish sinful people. And that's when they say, well, we'll never have to worry about talking to those people, not because it was so long ago, but because, you ready for this? The flood never happened. That's what I keep hearing. The flood never happened. In other words, we never have to worry about explaining the flood because, well, the flood never happened. That's just so handy. And when I hear someone say that, I always say, well, according to Genesis chapters 6 through 9, there was a worldwide flood in Noah's day, and Noah and his family were the only one to escape God's judgment and punishment, and they escaped because they believed God. And then they say that Moses wrote about the flood, but he got his information from the writings of the Sumerians. This is a real deal. He got his information from the writing of the Sumerians. And, oh, forgive me. I'm tempted at that point to tell them that I've spent my entire life working with tribal people in the remotest parts of the world and that there are hundreds of tribal groups all over the planet who have never heard of the writings of the Sumerians and who don't even have an orthography. They don't have an alphabet that they can use to write things down. But despite the fact that they have no way to record and pass along stories, there are hundreds of tribal groups way out there in the jungle who can tell the story, the distorted story, but they can tell the story of a worldwide flood. And the fact that people group after people group have that story embedded in their hearts leads me personally to a single conclusion. The flood happened. And that's why we're still talking about it. But I don't say that to the people who don't believe Moses. So I reason that if they won't believe Moses, what Moses write, uh, wrote, uh, inspired by God, and they're not going to believe what a bunch of uneducated, unsophisticated tribal people are saying, uh, even though, well, saying that about tribal people doesn't sound especially politically correct or woke to me either. So yeah, there are parts of the gospel message that are embarrassing. And uh, we might have grown ashamed of a God who hates sin and punishes sinful people. But I can tell you right now that that kind of shame has consequences because if we can't say that God hates sin and punishes sinful people, then we can't say that you are a sinner and because you are a sinner, that means that God will punish you for your sin. And if we can't say that God will punish you for your sin, then we also can't say, but I have good news for you. Jesus was already punished in your place. Jesus died for you. 
That's what being ashamed of the gospel does. It takes the very heart out of the gospel. And ultimately, and I, I say this as, as carefully as I can, ultimately it, it belittles, it derides, depreciates, demeans, and makes rubbish of the finished work of Christ. That's what's at stake here. And in the end, I owed a debt that I could not pay, and Jesus paid a debt that he did not owe, becomes, I'm okay, you're okay. That's where we are. And if you're going to ask me to choose between those two messages, then I can tell you that, if you, don't, you, know, that you don't have to ask. Because as Paul put it, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. But like Brian pointed out last week, if you're going to stand for the truth of the gospel, you have to be prepared to stand alone. We say that because there's an increasing number of people who will invite you to join them as they deconstruct their faith by taking away all those shameful parts of the gospel in the pursuit of a gospel that's no longer uh, offensive or politically incorrect. But you can take my word for it and then you can study it out yourself. There is no gospel message that is not offensive. And there is no gospel message that is politically correct. When God gave us the gospel, he did not give us the option of not being offensive. And he did not give us the option of being politically correct. Instead, God made it clear to us that he hates sin and punishes sinful people. And then he sent Jesus to the cross to die for us and be punished in our place. Think about the messages that Jesus preached when he was here. He confronted sin everywhere it was. And then he pointed to the cross and the sacrifice that was coming. You can't have Jesus being punished for us if we are not destined to be punished. You can't have Jesus being punished for us if we are not destined to be punished. So stop, stop, stop being ashamed of that message. And don't hesitate to share it with people who need to hear it, even if they might be offended as they hear it. Hey, you remember that illustration that Brian used last week when he told us about the day that he bought that diamond for his bride-to-be? I think that's probably why she married him. No, I don't know. I, I'm, that's not for me to say. He bought that diamond for the, his bride-to-be. He said that the diamond was pretty when it was held up in the light. You remember that? But that it turned brilliant when it was laid against the backdrop of that deep, dark material. Oh, I hope you caught that. Light turned to brilliance when it was set on a dark background in the same way that the light of the gospel turns to brilliance when it's set against the backdrop and blackness of our sin and unavoidable punishment at the hands of a perfectly holy and just God. So as I conclude this review, let me say it again. Stop being ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is more brilliant and more precious than diamonds. And the gospel is, in fact, the best thing that any of us have, no matter how poor or wealthy we may be. It's time to move on to the unpacking of the passage for this morning, and we always do that by reading the passage together aloud. And, and so if you would, and if you're able, please stand with me. And again, if you would, and if you're able, please read aloud with me as we take on this passage. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. You then, my son, 
be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Thanks. You can take your seats thankful that God speaks through his word. And as you're, as you're sitting there, ask God again to speak to your heart as, uh, as we undertake this passage. The story that I want to tell you this morning is a story that I told you when we first launched into this study of First and Second Timothy at the beginning of 2022. It's the story of when Paul and Timothy likely first met and of the day when Timothy likely first heard Paul teach and saw Paul suffer the consequences that came from preaching the gospel of God's grace. I want to tell you a story this morning about some things that happened on two of Paul's journeys, the journey that happened in Acts chapter 14 and the journey that happened in Acts chapter 16. Some would call that his first and second journey, but just like everything else, there's stuff to argue about there, so we won't go into that. At the beginning of Acts chapter 14, Paul's on the run, like always, from the Judaizers and false teachers who've been trying to kill him. And then by the beginning of chapter 16, Paul has agreed to disagree with the man that he had formerly traveled with, a man named Barnabas. And Barnabas now has a new partner in ministry, a man named Mark. Yeah, that Mark. And Paul has chosen a new ministry partner as well, a man named Silas. And with that background... This is the story from God's Word from Acts chapters 14 and 16 and with some cross-referencing to 2 Timothy chapter 1. You may remember that at the end of Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch of Pisidia. Not the, the church of Antioch that sent them out, but Antioch that was in Pisidia. And they'd been forced to leave there because of significant persecution that had been stirred up by the Jewish leaders there. Paul and Barnabas then traveled as far as Iconium, and when they got there, they went immediately to the synagogue and began teaching. They were so passionate and effective in their preaching and, and in their teaching and their sharing of the gospel that a large number of people believed, both from among the Jews and, and from among the Gentiles who were meeting with the Jews in and around the synagogue. There were, however, as you might expect, some Jews who wanted nothing to do with this good news that Paul and Barnabas had preached, and they very quickly stirred up the Gentiles who had been attending synagogue. Because of what the Jews were saying, the Gentiles grew bitter toward Paul and Barnabas and others who were there and who had believed the message they preached. The opposition only served to strengthen Paul and Barnabas' resolve to preach and teach the gospel there in Iconium. The two men relied heavily on the Lord. That's what the scripture says. And the Lord continued to graciously confirm their message by making it possible for them to do miracles. People of Iconium were divided. Some of them sided with the Jews and some sided with Paul and Barnabas. The dissenting Jews and Gentiles both went to their individual political leaderships and tried to get the authorities to take action against Paul and Barnabas. There were plans to stone them to death. And when Paul and Barnabas heard about those plans, they left Iconium and headed for a nearby town. They continued to preach the good news in that town and in the surrounding countryside. While they were there in that town, Paul noticed a man who was paralyzed and had been unable to walk since the time of his birth. 
And so this man was listening very intently to what Paul was saying. And Paul, Paul locked eyes. I, I do that myself when I'm speaking. I see the people who are listening, and I end up talking to them more than I talk to anybody else. So forgive me for that if you're listening this morning. But Paul looked at the man, and he knew that his faith was strong. So Paul locked eyes with him, and he said to him in a loud voice, Hey, stand up, stand up, get up on your feet. <laughs> the man leaped right up and began to walk. Well, of course, the crowd knew who this guy was, and they, they, they noticed right away what Paul had done, and they began shouting in their own language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. It's pretty clear from what's about to happen that Paul and, and Barnabas couldn't understand what the people were shouting because they didn't speak that language. In any event, the people started calling Barnabas Zeus, who was the chief, the king of all the Greek gods, and they called Paul Hermes, because Hermes was the messenger of the God, gods. They called Paul Hermes because he was doing the most, most of the talking, as you could probably guess. One of the men in the crowd was the priest of Zeus, and when this sentiment started building, uh, he, went, he hurried back to the temple of Zeus uh, that was just outside the city, and he got two oxen and some garlands of, of flowers and, and brought them back with him. And he was planning to offer them as a sacrifice. The two oxen, he's going to offer them as a sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. I, this has never happened to me anywhere that I've ever spoken. But, but Paul and Barnabas finally figured out what was going on. They saw the oxen. They saw the garlands. They saw the way people were interacting with them. They finally what was, figured out what was going on, and they reacted immediately. They tore their robes to show how distressed they were by this whole thing. And they ran into the crowd and started shouting, Hey, guys, whoa, time out. Why are you doing this? We are men just like you. And this is the very thing we've been talking to you about. We've been calling you to, to stop following your dead gods and to follow the living God instead. After all, it's the living God that made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he hasn't punished you for, for making offerings to dead gods, to your dead gods. He's, he's given you the rain and he's caused your crops to grow even though you haven't been worshiped for him. Paul and Barnabas, they're, they're just running through the crowd shouting, especially Paul is shouting, but the people were still determined to sacrifice the oxen to them. And in the end, Paul and, Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas were only just able to persuade them not to make the sacrifice. Whew. Right after all this confusion, the Jews who had made trouble in Antioch and Iconium, the two places where Paul had just been, showed up there in that town where that, all that happened. They went over the crowds and incited them to stone Paul to death, and then they dragged his body out of the city. They left Paul in a heap thinking that he was dead and the Jesus followers uh, who were there were just standing around Paul's body in total shock. Everyone, everyone thought that Paul was dead until he stood up and walked back under his own power back into the city. The next day, Paul left for Derby with Barnabas and we'll leave this journey right there and fast forward about a year to the second time Paul was in Derby and Lystra. Paul and Silas were traveling through Syria and, and Cilicia, uh, visiting the churches that Paul and Barnabas had planted. Silas is traveling with Paul now. They're visiting the churches that have been planted, and they're sharing the gospel with people who hadn't heard it. And as Paul and Silas continued their, their journey together, they made a point to visit the cities of Derby and Lystra, and there they met an older woman named Lois. 
Lois had grown up Jewish, and, was so, and somewhere along the way, she had heard the gospel and decided to become a Jesus follower. She believed that Jesus was the Messiah and her Savior, and she began to follow. Lois had a daughter named Eunice, who had also grown up Jewish, and, and she also became a follower of Jesus. Now, we don't know anything about, about Lois's husband, but we do know, even though we don't know the name of Eunice's husband, we know that he was a Greek. We know that he was not a, a practicing Jew. So Paul met and talked with that older woman named Lois and became convinced of her, of her deep and abiding faith in Jesus. And he became similarly convinced about the, death, the deep and sincere faith of Lois, of Eunice. And somewhere in the mix of all that, the, the, the people began to talk to Paul about a young man named Timothy. All the believers in Lystra spoke very highly of Timothy and Paul began to wonder if perhaps he shouldn't challenge Timothy to start traveling with him so that Paul would have the opportunity to train him in church planting and give him some experience. So Paul met with Timothy in a sort of job interview, and Paul was very pleased to know that Timothy was the grandson of Lois and of Eunice. Paul also took note of the fact that the faith that was so deep in, in Lois and Eunice was now also very deep in Timothy. And, and having made sure that, that there, was no, uh, there were no hindrances to him ministering to Jews, Paul asked Timothy to join them in their church planting efforts. And Timothy began to travel with them from town to town, preaching the gospel to the unreached and strengthening those baby churches in the faith and helping them grow. Paul had taken Timothy under his wings, so to speak, and that was the beginning of a relationship that would last a lifetime as Paul discipled Timothy as a father would disciple his son. And that is the story from God's Word. Now, perhaps you'll remember that Paul often refers to Timothy as his son in the faith. And when we first told these stories back in January of last year, we made the point that it's likely that Timothy heard Paul teach during Paul's first visit to Derby and Lystra. It was only about a year that separated those two journeys, and, and well, Timothy was old enough to travel with him the second time, he was old enough to listen to the message the first time. And I think it's very likely that Timothy chose on that day to trust Christ as his Savior, and well, that would very naturally make Paul Timothy's father in the faith. And by the end of the story, Timothy had accepted that invitation to travel with Paul and be discipled by Paul into an ongoing church ministry. It's a lifelong relationship. And so just to sum up, Paul had led Timothy to Christ and had offered to disciple Timothy into an effective church planting ministry, and Timothy had accepted. And as this passage for this morning comes into focus, Paul and Timothy have been ministering together, even when they were in different cities, so Paul has been discipling Timothy as a father would disciple his son for nearly 20 years. As we come to this passage, Paul's life is nearing an end. And the time has come for Paul to officially hand the baton off to Timothy, this man that he has known and trusted for 20 years. Now, you'll perhaps remember that last week Brian told us about some people who had lost Paul's confidence. You remember that? And he paired that with at least one man who had managed to keep Paul's full confidence. In the former category were two men named Phygelus and Hermogenes, which sounds like a, a I don't, dairy farmer to me, but um, in the, Phygelus and Hermogenes, who according to Paul, along with so many people in Asia, had deserted him at a time when he really needed them to stand by him when he was on trial. 
Paul actually felt that any, everyone in Asia had deserted them, but he seems especially disappointed and maybe even a little surprised that these two men, maybe close friends, had chosen a move in a direction that took them away from the Apostle Paul. Now, keep in mind that Paul and Timothy were separated by several hundred miles during this time, but their physical separation had not led to a spiritual separation. But Phygelus and Hermogenes, two men who at one time had Paul's confidence, had now chosen to move in a different direction than Paul had been traveling. Amos 3.3 says, Do two walk together unless they've agreed to do so? In other words, is it possible for us to travel together if we're going to different places or traveling in different directions? Can we walk together if we don't first agree where we're going? Well, no, it's not possible. So Paul was no longer able or willing to travel with Phygelus and Hermogenes because those two men had chosen to head off in a direction where Paul could not and would not join them. Onesiphorus, on the other hand, was still traveling in the same direction as Paul, both spiritually and physically. And as you might remember, Paul said that Onesiphorus had come to Rome and had searched diligently for Paul and found him there in prison and refreshed Paul in the midst of Paul's imprisonment because Onesiphorus was not ashamed of the gospel, the point that Brian made last week. I want you to look at a couple of pictures. This this first one is of a very impressive memorial that's been built to honor the first king of Italy. But I can tell you that for me, there's something much more impressive directly behind that building. Directly behind that building, there are ruins. But if you look, look past those three pillars there in the center, you'll see a church that covers the far corner of that old foundation, way there in the back corner. That church has been built there because, according to tradition, Paul's prison cell was in the darkness of the prison beneath where that church now stands. And as you look at this picture, perhaps you can imagine Onesiphorus diligently searching throughout the many Roman prisons looking for the Apostle Paul with the hopes of refreshing this hero of the faith as he was held in chains right there in the darkness. Broke my heart to stand there and contemplate that prison where Paul was held until the day that he was taken out of the prison and taken outside of the city wall and then executed. He was beheaded simply because he would not alter the message of the gospel or stop preaching the gospel. It broke my heart because of how easily we let go of the bits and pieces of the message of the gospel today because of how little respect we have for the gospel. And standing near Paul's prison cell... I asked God for new enthusiasm to keep the gospel intact and to continue to pass it along to other generations. So there were Phagellus and Hermogenes, two men who had been ashamed of the gospel and deserted Paul when he needed them. And there was Onesiphorus, a man <laughs> who I wish had a different name, who was not ashamed of the gospel and who had searched diligently until he found Paul and offered him words of refreshment and encouragement. Paul ends chapter 1 with Phagellus, Hermogenes, and Onesiphorus, and then he begins chapter 2 by talking to a young man named Timothy. And real quick here, what category are we going to put Timothy in? Was it the category of, of, of Phagellus and Hermogenes, or was it the category of Onesiphorus? 
Well, before you shout out something too quickly, let me just say that Timothy, in my mind, was not in either category because Paul thought of Phygelus and Hermogenes as people who had deserted him and of Onesiphorus as a man who had refreshed him in that dark, dank prison. But Timothy? Paul thought of Timothy as his son. And now at the end of his life, Paul didn't want Timothy to refresh him. He wanted Timothy to replace him. Paul had spent years guarding, defending, preaching, and, and, and protecting the gospel of God's grace. And now that his life is nearly over, Paul wanted Timothy to lead the charge against any and all who would pervert, edit, twist, or change the gospel. So as Paul's life ebbs away, he has something to say uh, to his son. But in order to fully appreciate and understand what Paul's about to say, there's a couple of words we need to look at. I, I, I trust you'll be patient with me here. Those words are grace and tolerance, and we've talked about them before, but it bears repeating as we consider this passage this morning. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines tolerance as sympathy or indulgence for beliefs or practices differing from or conflicting with one's own. And if you look closely at, at, that, at that definition and think about it, you see that that's a pretty fair definition of what it means to be woke. But now look at the same dictionary, how the same dictionary defines grace. Unmerited, divine assistance given to humans for their regeneration and sanctification. In other words, we're a mess. And apart from the help that only God can give, we will never be regenerated, born again, or sanctified, made holy. And by the way, I, I just want us to notice that even the dictionary, even the dictionary even the dictionary recognized that we don't deserve what God alone has done for us. We don't deserve it, unmerited. And when even the dictionary gets that right, there is no excuse for the people who study God's word to be so twisted and torqued and torn in their understanding of the gospel. And now mindful of the fact that Paul's near death and aware, aware of how important his relationship with Timothy is, and understanding the difference between grace and tolerance, look at what Paul said to Timothy in verse 1. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now remember, Paul's in prison. And he'll tell us in chapter 4 that the first part of his trial, his first defense had already happened, and he felt abandoned because no one that he knew showed up to support him there. And as he writes this, he knows that the day is fast approaching when he would be called before the magistrate again, and he's made it clear that he doesn't expect that to, to go well either. And we know from church history that Paul was right because he wouldn't walk back the gospel. He would be taken from that prison cell and executed. And Paul doesn't want <coughs> the gospel to die with him. So with that thought looming over him, Paul looked around and saw Timothy, his son in the faith, a man that he'd had confidence in, a man that he had discipled for the past 20 years. And Paul has already written to Timothy to not be afraid and to not be ashamed and to not share in the sins of others. But here in this part of the letter, Paul says something that for me shines and sparkles like a diamond on a black background. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. 
I think it's important here that we, know that we notice that Paul's not asking Timothy to be woke. He's not asking him to be tolerant. In fact, he's not asking Timothy to do anything. He's charging Timothy. He's ordering Timothy to be strong in grace. And that, of course, naturally leads to the question, what does it mean to be strong in grace? What does it look like when we're strong in grace? Well, we could theorize about that, or we could try to make something, to make something up, or we could just look at the next thing that Paul says, where he seems to be answering the very questions we're asking. Look at verse 2. And the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. You know, I love it when the scriptures give us an opportunity to visit with an old friend. And in this case, I'm not talking about Paul or, or Barnabas or, or even Timothy. Uh, I'm talking about a word. A word that Paul used in his letters more than once. And I want to show you some places where he used it. I, I need about two more minutes here. I want to show you a few places where this old friend word is. And, and well, it, it, it tends to bring another friend along with it. Watch what happens here. In 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2, this then is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. In Galatians 2, 7, Paul says, on the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. 1 Thessalonians 2.4, on the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. In Titus 1.1-3, Paul introduces his letter to Titus by saying, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time and which now at his appointed season has been brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. 1 Timothy 1, 10 and 11. Whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. 1 Timothy 6, 20 and 21. Timothy, guard what's been entrusted to your care. Turn away from the godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have departed from the faith. 2 Timothy 1, 13 and 14. What you heard from me keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And the very last time in his life that Paul used this word in his writings was in the passage for this morning where Paul has just said, and the things you have heard from me say, in the pre things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. In a word, those who are entrusted with the gospel keep the gospel intact and they also entrust the gospel to other people, reliable people. So what does it mean to be strong in grace? What does it look like when we're strong in grace? Well, I can tell you what it means to me. I shared my testimony with you a few weeks back, and I can remind you that 63 years ago, 
my own mother entrusted me with the simple but powerful message of the gospel, the good news. And I have spent the entirety of those 63 years since then keeping that message safe and intact from one day to the next. And since childhood, I've spent time entrusting that message to other people. And I mean that. I've, I've shared that message with others from the, from the time that I rode in the school bus to, to North Street Elementary School in Tewksbury, Massachusetts, way back in 1962. As the years passed and I became an adult in full-time ministry, I became more convinced than ever of the need to keep the gospel safe and intact as I passed it along to other people. But despite that, from my early teen years, I've seen people twist and torque the gospel and attempt to rob it of its power. There have been many times when I had to choose to be strong in grace as I fought to keep that message intact. And I can tell you that over the years, I've entrusted that message to many people in many different countries who have kept the gospel safe and intact and have in turn entrusted it to others. And sadly, I have to admit that I've also entrusted the gospel to some who have disrespected that message and turned it into something else in an effort to make it more palatable for themselves and for others. And I can tell you that the older I get, the more determined I am and the more stubborn I am about keeping the gospel safe and intact. The gospel is a message that is declared clearly, clearly in the New Testament written. But it's designed to be a message that's spoken from one generation to the next. It's a spoken message, clear in the, in the writings, but then it's transmitted to us and through us via the spoken word. And that's why we have to be so careful with it. That was the plan that Jesus had, that one person would speak it to another. All of us have the privilege. All of us have the privilege of knowing and understanding the gospel and then passing it along to others. But if we're not strong in grace, if we're not careful with the gospel, if we don't make sure to pass it along to others in all its purity, then the harsh and staggering reality is this, the extinction of Christianity the loss of the gospel and the end of the Jesus followers, the fading of the light are always only one generation away. If you and I fail in this task that has been entrusted to us, then the next generation has no hope of being able to pass it along to others. Are you passing it along to your kids? Are your kids passing it along to your grandkids? Are you involved in keeping this message intact and pure and passing it along to others. Have you entrusted the gospel? Have you been entrusted with the gospel this morning? And are you entrusting the gospel to others? People are working really hard to distort that message. In closing, I, I just want to say that uh, what Paul is asking us to do today is be strong in grace. And indulge me for 30 seconds more. I can tell you that over the years, God has given me sons and daughters and grandsons and granddaughters that stretch well beyond the confines of, of, uh, of our immediate family and the borders of the property that we own. Many of those that I consider to be sons and daughters are here this morning. So this morning, I want to leave you with these words. You then, 
my sons and daughters, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will be able to teach others also. Be strong in grace. Will you stand with me in the presence? Our Father and our God, we thank you today for, I thank you for this group of people that are here. I thank you that buried within them on a foundational level is the good news that Jesus died for them, that he was buried and that he rose again in their place. And God, I please help them to place their confidence there instead of their good works. If they're offended by that message that they're sinful and in need, then, then God, I pray that you'd help them to understand that that is the truth and that is the reality. Thank you that Jesus died for us, that he was buried, and that he rose again for us. We're supposed to die for our sins, but Jesus died in our place. And so thank you for what you've done. Thank you for these people here that know that. And God, I pray that you would help us to be strong in grace as we keep that message intact and as we pass it along to the next generation and the generation after that. God, we don't want to see the light fade, not in our generation or any of the generations to come. So raise us up to keep that message intact and pass it along to those who are still waiting to hear. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen and amen. Now, sometimes it's really complicated. We've huddled up. We're headed out there. I can I, the, sum it up in four words. You, maybe you could sum it up with me in four words. Would you do that? Be strong in grace. One more time. Be strong in grace. Ready? Break. Go get them, Potter's house.